Welcome, friends, to another episode of The Human Voice. As always, Bob Hutchins here, coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee. I have a guest today that I think you're going to enjoy. And as you know, my new book is out, along with Jenny Black, called Our Digital Soul, Collective Anxiety and Media Trauma, and A Path Toward Recovery. I want to encourage you all to go pick it up on Amazon if you haven't yet. Thank you for all the kind reviews so far. Um, one of the things that Jenny and I talk about in our book is the effects, the, the affects and the effects of digital media, screens, technology on our lives, both psychologically, physiologically, and culturally. And David has written a brand new book. It's titled The Future is Analog, where he talks about a very similar thing, but he comes at it from a unique angle. So before we jump into that with David, I want to tell you a little bit about his background, who he is, and some of his other things that he's written about. David is a journalist. He's a writer, a keynote speaker, specializing in business and culture. Born in Toronto, Ontario, David has written for publications such as the New York Magazine, Vanity Fair, Bloomberg Business Week, the New York Times, NPR, GQ, and Toronto Life. His best-selling 2016 book, The Revenge of Analog, has this description, which I love. A funny thing happened on the way to the digital utopia. We've begun to fall back in love with the very analog goods and ideas the tech gurus insisted that we no longer needed. In his new book, The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World, David points out the onset of the pandemic instantly gave us the digital universe we'd spent so long anticipating. Instant communication, online shopping, virtual everything. But it didn't take long to realize how awful it was to live in this promised future. We craved real experiences, relationships, and spaces and got back to real life as quickly and as often as we could. David, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Bob. Good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Are you coming to me, the human on the other side of the screen and microphone from Ontario today? From Toronto. From Toronto. I'm sorry. From Toronto, Ontario. Well, you know, it's like... (laughs) Sorry. Us Americans don't know anything about Canada. You know Ontario is a province. A province is like a state. Gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for taking this time. I know you're probably starting to ramp things up on this book interview, virtual and real tour, hopefully more real than virtual. Yeah, next week, the real, the reality begins. I go to four different cities on the East Coast, and then I come back to Toronto for the week of Thanksgiving. So I mean, America shuts down, so I can go shopping and, I don't know, eat turkey. And then I go to the West Coast. So eight cities, which is incredible. I haven't done a book tour like that since my first book, and, and I'm really excited. Really That's excited. great. That's great. Well, first of all, I want to say I love the 2016 book. I know you've written others, but Revenge of Analog was great for many reasons. It, it was around this, the time that I personally was starting to think through this and look at culture. And I love the nod to Nashville in your book, talking about the, the records and vinyl. And so thank you for that book. It was fascinating. And if, if any listeners haven't read it, I encourage you to go out and read it because I think it's a great companion to your new book, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, one, you know, I don't want to call this one a sequel because I always think of Jaws 2 and 3. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Consider this new book, The Mandalorian of the, of the, 
Venera. But, you know, this book obviously came out of the topic and the conversation that I was having around that earlier one, Revenge of Analog. And Revenge of Analog, the difference between the two is Revenge of Analog was looking at a phenomenon that was already occurring and I was witnessing, which was the surprising resurgence and growth of non-digital goods and services and ideas that were occurring, you know, despite the assumption that these things would be disrupted out of existence by digital technology. And so, you know, it was the the return of vinyl records and the, the flowering, again, of independent bookstores and things like moleskin journals and other paper products and film cameras, all of which had this sort of comeback over the past 10, 15 years. I, I was interested in finding out what was behind that, why that was happening. Mm. And this new book, The Future is Analog, really came out of you know, the emergency situation that we found ourselves in at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm. And uh, I actually had another book that came out right around that, April 2020. It was called The Soul of an Entrepreneur. It was about entrepreneurship. But I was getting more interview requests by media all over the world. Spain, Argentina, France, Germany, Brazil. And, and people were just wanting to know what was the future of analog? Because everybody was saying everything was now digital. And this was the new normal. And there was no going back to work and school and you know, church and concerts, like everything was going to be online and we'd, we'd shifted the way we lived permanently and this was it. What did I think about that? And as I started to try to answer that question, which was, you know, a challenge in a way to everything that I had talked about, as well as, you know, the way we'd all been living our lives, I, I felt like I had to address it in, in a way that was, I guess, on my terms and, and with a little more thought and research than, you know, uh, a snap interview on a podcast with someone in France, in my broken French, no less. So, so this book really looks at what we learned during that time about the value of the analog spaces, relationships, interactions that we had in the world that we had to do with that for months or even years because of the pandemic. Mm. And what it taught us about the future that we actually want versus what we were told we kind of were headed toward with the digital future. Interesting. Yeah. Well, let's jump right in. One of the questions that your book asks, which fascinates me, by the way, the, the subtitle or of this podcast is the intersection of, of technology, psychology, and human flourishing. So you're speaking my language. That's a Martin Seligman goodness right there. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that... You're speaking my language, and one of the questions that I really want to unpack with you, and I think is really at the core of this book, is can we reject the downsides of digital technology without rejecting change? That That's something that I personally wrestle with. I know I hear from my listeners and what I write and speak about myself, and I know that's something that that you wrestle with too, because Digital and technology is my career. And, you know, it's not lost that this is a podcast that we're doing over Zoom that people will listen to on their, yeah, no. on their cell phones. And there will be no, almost no analog to this. But so the question that I would pose back to you, and I'd love for you to riff on a little bit and, and let's talk about is can we, can we reject the downsides of digital technology without rejecting change and progress? 
Yeah, it, it's a great question. And one that I haven't been asked yet in, in the sort of round of podcast interviews that I've been doing. They've been quite binary, which is, I, I guess, surprising to me, right? You know, people are really like, I love this. I love this. I, you know, I hate technology or, you know, how can you say this? You know, technology is wonderful. But I, I never came at this from the perspective of someone who was calling for a rejection of digital technology in any of the spheres that I'm talking about or in the sphere of life. I don't think there's anyone that really does that seriously. What I'm striving for is sort of a reclamation of balance. And, and that's what you allude to, right? Because I think there is this assumption that it's all or nothing. And that's the very binary way that digital frames things. You have to be all in on something. And, and it can't just be sort of a piece of, of one's life. I think what we discovered in the pandemic, in, in those days and weeks when we were kind of stuck inside with nothing, but our screens, is how quickly and how horribly that can get out of balance. And what it's like when there's far too little, if no balance whatsoever, in, in the way we are using technology. When you're in front of your screen for eight, nine, ten hours a day, and every single activity you do, work, school, socializing, praying, exercise, you know, entertaining yourself, getting a recipe to learn how to cook, all of it is done, you know, on your laptop, your TV, your tablet, your phone, back and forth over and over and over and over, just eating through the data that you have on your streaming plan, your telegram. And so, you know, what could we learn from that, right? I, I suppose one thing we could learn is that, okay, I, this is terrible. I completely reject technology. I'm going to take everything, throw it in the trash, move to a cabin in the woods, and throw my own food and, you know, hunt for living or whatever, right? There's a lot of people who did that, and I don't think there's a lot of people who are advocating for that. Certainly not. I enjoy the conveniences of the modern world. To a point, right? Uh, the other thing is to say, nope, this is great. This is everything I want. This is the future I, I need to be living in. I want more Zoom cocktail parties. I don't ever want to go anywhere again. And again, that's a, there's a small minority of people for whom that's true, and they might have social anxieties and they might just just be so technologically forward. And for them, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has a $1,500 VR headset to sell you and, you know, go, go live your life in the metaverse. That's, that's wonderful. But for most of us, it is this daily struggle, much like the struggle we have with anything that can be good for us and bad for us, depending on how much we have it. So let's talk food, nutrition, right? Uh, it is this sort of great daily struggle that we figure out what our nutritional balance is in life for the things we eat. Halloween was last week. We got a lot of candy in this house. I thought, <laughs> and so we're putting limits on it. You know, first week, three pieces a day. Second week, two pieces a day. Now we're going to be down to one piece a day. And as soon as November's over, you know, that candy's going away. So. And that is a balance that we strive for and struggle with in our day-to-day -day lives. And I think we're doing that with technology now. But we're only really coming to a reckoning with it recently. And I think the pandemic kind of pushed that into our face and said, okay, you, you like streaming, you like digital, great, here you go. That's all you have for, you know, four months or a year or more. And, and, and so can we have that balance? Yes, but it requires a sort of consciousness of it and a and weighing and a judgment of its benefits and virtues and where the digital technology provides more value for us and where 
The analog alternative is the thing that we actually care about more. And striking that right balance is basically our job for the remainder of our future as we sort of go forward and create new technologies and integrate them into our lives, but hopefully not in a way that's automatic and thoughtless. Yeah, that's good. You know, I probably every episode I mentioned the E.O. Wilson quote. You're familiar with that? The E.O. Wilson, the biologist? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, one of the things that he said is a problem with, with society is that we have paleolithic brains, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. <laughs> and uh, me, I always go back to that because it helps to frame exactly what you're talking about is our brains haven't really changed for the last 20,000 years. You know, yes, we're smarter. Yes, we know more. But at the end of the day, the emotions and our nervous systems and our feelings, the way that we react to pain, to stress, to anxiety, to joy, to love is basically the same. But what has changed is our technology. And it really is godlike technology. If you were to explain our daily life in the pandemic and post-pandemic, To someone 100 years ago, it would be like magical, crazy, that's not real, right? So, but that's how we live and our brains can't really catch up to that. And that's what I hear you saying in your own unique way is that we keep coming back. And in your previous book, why do we keep coming back to the tactile things, to the vinyl albums that we can open and see and and read the liner notes and hear the crackle of the needle on the vinyl itself. The, there's something magic about that when, when I was growing that just ones and zeros and downloads at will can't really give. And that's us getting back in touch with who we are as humans and our in our brains and the way that that we're wired. What is your thoughts on on that from the sense of are we going so fast that it's that we can't catch up? And the more that we progress, whether it's you know Moore's law or whatever, that we just we become less and we become less and less detached from our humanity. Is that something that you get in in your book? Yeah, I mean, I I think ultimately what you're talking about and, and what Wilson's talking about is especially relates because he wasn't talking about digital technology right. at the time. He's writing in the 19. What was it? 50s or 60s, right? Yeah, he just uh, died about a year ago. But yeah, he's he, he's been around. He was around for a long time. Yeah. You know, he was talking about kind of cars and machine age and maybe television in the beginning of, of the computer age. But, you know, I, I, I think the main thing that we realized during that the sort of peak of the pandemic when everything was digital and, and work for people was like this, just sitting still in a chair, staring at your computer, being on Zoom. That we had bodies. Right, human beings have bodies. You talk about the evolution of the brain and how can our brain compute? Yes, that that is a thing. How we compute language, how we compute communication, how our brain, you know, can't really still make sense this type of conversation versus conversation face to face because that's what we've evolved to do: learning, education, all these sort of aspects. But like, we have bodies, we have hands, we exist in the world. I'm smacking a desk; you can hear it, right? I'm 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 a flesh and blood creature on a spinning rock. And we forgot that. We thought that we could take all the information that was around, oh, here's some light, and here's some images, and here's some sound, and we'll render it to this, and you know, we're going to bring it on this flat screen, and there you go, that's all we need, right? And it isn't all we need. And that was the thing that we were striving for. Even if we couldn't put our finger on it, it was like this disembodied discontent because our 
corporeal selves had been removed from the world and replaced by, you know, information that was brought to us through a flat glass panel or earbuds, if you want to call it that, right? And, mm-hmm. and so why do we keep going back to, you know, if, why earlier were we already sort of going back to, or not even going back to, but like electing physical objects because it gave us that. So the, my, the best example is books, right? Ebooks have been out for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. In the late Yeah. Right? And everybody assumed that this was going the way of Napster, right? Like, why on earth would people buy a dead tree with the same words on it when they could get this, you know, super light thing that would, you would tap and get the book and it'd be backlit and wonderful. And I owned a Kindle until it died. I had two. One got crushed in the back of an airplane, like, compartment because someone put their thing down and the other one just died and it's like sorry get a new one you know when i look at the book sale numbers that i have and this is pretty much across the industry for every 10 books that are sold nine are in paper and one is digital still right it's not like the technology had to catch up those e-readers that you first bought in 2006 2007 like they're pretty much the same now they're a little smaller they're a little lighter they might have more bells and whistles but it's a great job. And yet people prefer books. They prefer to take a book and hold it in their hand and pick it up. Fabulous book, by the way, Barbarian Days. I picked this up in Mexico in a place I was staying on a surf trip. And I just like exchanged the book I read for this one. And it, you could see it's dog-eared. It's heavy as hell. But, you know, there's nothing inside this that I got from this edition of the book that I wouldn't have gotten if I bought it on Kindle. And yet I vastly prefer it. And I can't even tell you why. But the reason is because I am a physical creature and it's a physical thing. And I have learned to read by my sense. Have you ever seen a child read? you have children? Yes. Right? So when you were teaching your kids to read, what's the first thing they do? When babies and give them a little Sandra Boynton board book or whatever. It's like, they take it and they put it in their mouth and they lick it and they throw it and they smack it. Those baby books are built like tanks because they have to deal with the abuse. But that is, that's a physical engagement with the thing that then they learn to do. And I see the way my kids read, like it's, it's a real physical thing and they trash their books, but they love them, you know, so much. It's this physical thing. That's, that's a very different thing when you're taking that information and putting it on the screen. Now extrapolate that out to far more complicated social things in life, like work or school, where not only are you talking about the information being sort of flattened and digitized, but all the context and social relationships of an office or a classroom or the people that you're interacting with, suddenly that's just this, and you've removed the body from it, that is a recipe for discontent. Mm. That's good. Really, what you're talking about at a at a macro level is a when you remove culture, um, when you remove, like you said, the corporal body and physical connection. What we find is we don't do well with that as humans. So, to that point, what is culture to you, and why is it so important? Because in your book, you, you tend to really zoom out and, and look at school, you look at religion, you look at community, 
you look at work and all of these could be considered like we all live in in a culture right we grow up in a culture whether it's who we go to school with who we live next door to who we go to church with or or synagogue or whatever we do in in our religion you know where we work all of those things can you expound on that a little bit like what is culture and why is it so important it's a hell of a question for a Tuesday morning. I wish I'd eaten lunch before this, but it's a great one because it 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 does frame this in a certain way. I, I, let's give a little specific example. So, so my best fell. So I, I have a chapter in this book on culture. And when I talk about culture, I'm talking about sort of artistic culture, right? right. And performances, live performances, concerts, plays, comedy, you know, all these things that we would have gone out and paid a ticket to go see in a wonderful city like Nashville here in Toronto, we had to sort of stream online. And, 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 and what was it about them that just kind of, I don't know, felt flat, right? I remember trying to watch different streaming shows or things that people would send me. It was just like, ah, boring. Like, you know, trying to watch Hamilton performance on Disney Plus. And after two minutes, I was like, ah, what else is on? I loved Hamilton. I loved it. Was, I actually saw the opening and closing night in Toronto, which was like wow. the night when when the NBA closed its season and everyone turned on their phone, the band remission, they're like, I guess we better go buy some beans. So what, what was it about that, right? It, I think culture is the context of life, mm. if you want to call it that, right? And, and this is what we were missing. And this is what we're missing when we talk about sort of the digitized future. A digitized future is absence of that context. It's information. Information is incredibly important. The information of a concert is the notes and the sounds that the musicians and musicians are making. And the context is everything around that. It's, you know, the room you're in and the people that are there and what people are wearing and how they're dressing and the smells and the other sounds that are mingling with it and making what you're drinking or eating. I mean, let's talk Nashville for a bit. Like, there's a fabulous place in the Gulch, I want to call it, mm-hmm. called the Station Inn. Yep. And the Station Inn is like an old, tiny hockey talk. Is that a good way to describe it? Yep. You know, kind of a old, beaten down place now, like smashed between a bunch of luxury hotels and condominiums. And it's still hanging on. It's like you, you could arrive out of it on a horse. And you go inside and it's kind of like beaten up, folded chairs and Formica tables. They got a popcorn machine in the back and you know a bunch of drinks and people selling you beer and cowboy boots and you go there and you listen to bluegrass and fiddle music and like real awesome country and the music is great but the place is just as awesome and and you have that with you know all these music venues around nashville i mean if you go to jack white's third man records to see a show it's like this willy wonka color land of different textures and sights and sounds. If you go to the Grand Old Opry, it's the sort of woodsy temple of country. And all of those things are why people travel from around the world to go spend a weekend in Nashville going to see music. Right. You can hear that music, you know, online. You could buy a record. You could stream it on Spotify. You could pay to have a... Opry streaming package and probably watch everything from the country come to your living room, but nothing beats being there because it's the culture. The culture isn't just the product or the information itself. And that's the same thing 
in all the spaces of our life where we live and work and interact, right? Yes. Church. You can go and buy the holy books of the Bible. Get them free, I assume, especially in Tennessee. I imagine they just give them up by the roadside. Exactly. You can get the books of the Bible or the Quran or the Torah or, you know, the, the texts of Buddha and have them or download them on your phone right now in three seconds of Google. And you could read them and study them and read them and memorize them, you know, look up different tracks and, and get into groups online to discuss them. But the thing that builds faith is that context. It's going to church on Saturday morning or Sunday morning. It's going to St. Right. Saturday. It's going to the mosque on Friday afternoon and everything that comes with it. Another great natural example. One of my favorite restaurants in that town of delicious restaurants is a place called Silver Sands Soul Food, which is like a real classic, you know, Black American soul food haven. And I, I've been there on Sunday mornings when the crowd comes in from church in their gorgeous hats and suits and dressed to their nines. And the lineup goes out the door and it's sort of like a meat and three buffet. And, you know, you, you go and you get all the greens and the fried chicken and your ham hock and all this amazing food that like immediately have a heart attack after this. It's so intense. But that is part for those people in that community. Like faith isn't just the words in the Bible. Faith isn't just the songs that they're singing at church. It's everything. It's getting dressed. It's buying those clothes. It's going to Silver Sands afterwards. That forms their idea of Christianity. That forms their idea of community. And all of those things are inseparable from culture and context. Mm. And so I think what we saw is that the more we digitize something, be it school or work or church or concert, the more we remove the cultural context from it. Because suddenly all we're doing is we're taking away that context, we're pulling out the information, the notes, the meeting, the spreadsheets, their you know, math lesson, the sermon, and we're we're rendering it into sort of visual files or textual files or audio files, some combo thereof. And we're sort of saying, here you go, this is an easy, vastly disseminable way to to access this, you know, and that's, this is the future. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, one of the things that I, I have observed being in the buckle of the Bible belt and having friends and, and people who either are ministers or people who frequent church, one of the things is an interesting phenomenon. I'd love to get your take on this is there was a sense for many of of release and disconnection, but it was almost a reorganization, meaning, you know, what we miss is the community. We missed our friends. We missed how we, we came together around our faith and our spirituality, and we want that. But it also shed light on maybe some of the ways and the things that we didn't miss during that time, i.e., do we need all the big pomp and circumstance? Do we need to be stressed out and rushing around to get to something that maybe it got us back to the core of the community? Like, I just want to get together with my friends. I just want to get together in my small groups. I just want to get together in, in a quiet Sunday morning. Does that make sense at all? It was almost like a reorientation in a lot of ways. 
which is is another perspective on this. Totally. I mean, it 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 really cut through the the noise of modern life and and made each of us assess what was important and what wasn't. And it's individualistic. Yes. Some people want to go back to the like, you know, yearning for the pomp and circumstance of of whatever it is they're doing. Right. We're talking about, you know, they want to go back to the to the office, wear their suits. Like there were people who were like, I can't wait to get back in my suit and go, you know, to my main office in downtown Manhattan and and, you know, like have that thing back. And they actually love that. And other people are like, I'm happy to go into work once in a while, but like I never want to wear a suit again in my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or I never want to go to into work in my life. And and you know, talking about faith, there are people who are like, I want to go and like have an experience as pompy and circumstantial as like I want to be like I want to go to the Vatican. <laughs> sure. I want to wear a giant robe and have incense swinging. And other people who 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 had the opposite was like, I want what you wanted, Bob, which is like I want to do, you know, I, I did so many, I'm Jewish, and I did so many sort of Jewish holiday services and things outdoors. And I'm like, this is great. I I am happy to go to like outdoor bar mitzvahs and outdoor, you know, Yom Kippur services for the rest of my life. And of course, you know, that was, that's, everyone's gone back inside, especially. In it. And and so I think it did show us like cut down to the, the, the core of what that is. And each of us are evaluating what is valuable in that, analog world and the analog life that we have and what are the elements of it that actually matter to us the most yeah that's good you know speaking uh, uh, around that my wife is a teacher and i also obviously study a lot of the effects of this is you know in talking to teachers talking to her talking to others in different grades and now looking at some of the studies that have come out recently you know, our children have really been affected in not only emotionally, psychologically, but also they're behind. Let's just be honest. I mean, the studies on tests and other things that are coming out, they're behind in where they should be. And it's it's interesting to me that while online learning has been pushed now way before the pandemic, and many of us have studied online and even done college courses and, and degrees online. What the pandemic showed us is something else was going on, whether it was lack of preparation for our kids' schools or that lack of human connection and community that, that you talk about. Talk about the school section of your book, because I know you have a whole, a whole section in your book about that. Yeah, I, two things, right? One is this wasn't something that was isolated with the United States or North America or Western countries of the world. I mean, pretty much every single kid in the world, except for a couple of kids in New Zealand, were out of school and learning online in some way, shape, or form for months or even years. And here in Ontario, in Canada, like we had one of the longest school shutdowns and it freaking sucked. Trust me. <laughs> you know, kindergarten and grade two. And it was atrocious. We had a one-day strike of a labor action yesterday by the province's education workers, the government's idiotic here. And, and it was like the, every parent freaking out. It was just so traumatic that the possibility that you were going back to this, thankfully, they spoke up. And that was, <laughs> the kids are back at school right now. Why could you do this interview? The other thing is that, you know, yes, it, across the school, across the world, the results were, it was atrocious. And there was learning loss everywhere. I think it's a very American thing that people are focusing on the sort of learning loss, learning loss, learning loss that, that people aren't 
where they should be. Students are where they should be. Like everyone in the world's behind, you know? And this idea that people have to catch up, you know, you can't fast forward what happened. Everybody lost that time of learning. Right. They're going to, people will catch up or get to whatever level they need to be. They can't do anything about it other than do our best to teach them. Um, but why did it fail? I think that's the question that 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 we have to ask, right? Because as you alluded to, the promise and the sort of utopian vision of online learning, of digital school and the digital future of education has been around for years. It was around when people were pitching sort of Encarta C. Rom's future of education. It was around when Thomas Edison was telling us that, you know, uh, schools would be obsolete because kids will be able to listen to radio broadcasts of the best lectures and, and there wouldn't be teachers and it wouldn't be built. And so you have, you know, the one laptop per child initiative in the early 2000s and you have, you know, the Sebastian Thurman and his MOOC movement, you know, massive open online course. You could go to any university in the world, listen to the lectures, and this is what will educate. And all of these things failed miserably. I mean, really, like across the board, every country they've been tried in, you know, the best teachers, the best schools, the best technology, thumbs down, failure, something you would never accept in any other place. And yet people kept trying until every student in the world had to go through it. And everyone who was a parent, a teacher, a student, from kindergarten all the way up to grad school, you know, 90% of them were like, this sucks. This is terrible. When can this end? This is a failure. I hate this. This is not the way I want to teach. This is not the way I want to learn. I'm sure your wife had similar sentiments to that. Yep. Why is that? I, I interviewed a gentleman in the previous book and I, I went back to him last year when I was doing research for this. His name's Larry Cuban. He's a professor of education at Stanford. And for years was someone who was sort of involved in ed tech and, and, and became one of its biggest critics and studied its effects and why it failed. And he said that the failure is kind of what we talked about before, right? It's the difference of information and culture. Culture in this case is what he called knowledge or education. You know, I can teach you online, you know, one plus one is two or long division or chemistry or facts about U.S. history, if such a thing exists in mind. I can, I can teach you online how to disassemble a car engine or fix a microwave oven, which I did recently from a YouTube video. It was great. But what I can't do online and what I can't do remotely through technology, whether it's an encyclopedia or a radio broadcast or CD-ROM or you know, a series of, of videos shown in some virtual reality environment, is build a relationship with you as a student and allow you to build a relationship with other students in a deep way that makes you care about learning. And so you actually care about the relationship and build a culture of education and knowledge that allows you to absorb those facts and interpret them and put them into the context of the greater life you're living and not just as these isolated things, right? Yes. That's the difference. And that's always been the problem with the sort of promise of ed tech and the promise of remote education is it's like, we found a way to deliver the information, you know, in the most efficient way to the most people. And this is the future of education. It's like, no, no, no. That's the future of information delivery. But that's not the future of education. That's not education at all. That's not learning. That's just facts regurgitated in a different format. Mm. And I think that misunderstanding is the reason why this is, Something that nobody is going back to. And if anyone's like, hey, the future of ed tech is going to be 
schools in VR, like they will be run out of town on a rail, covered in tar and feathers. I love the way that you said um, it's the culture of learning that takes the human element, not just the information that is learned. And you're right. You know, all of us can remember those special teachers in our lives that were so impactful, regardless of how old or young we were. And what I, I, I would be willing to bet that the reason we remember them is their human engagement with us, not the information, but right. the, the em- I mean, I, empathy, I, yeah. et cetera. Think of the great teachers you had in you know, elementary school, high school, college. You know, doesn't matter what subject they taught. The the ones that connected you were the ones that connected with you as a human, and because of that, you cared more about the subject they taught than you know about it. I mean, I could have had a teacher, you know, teaching me about skiing, <laughs> one of my favorite things in the world, and if they didn't connect with me, I wouldn't have cared as much, right? Whereas if somebody connected with me about a subject that I didn't even consider, and it actually made me care, then you know, I will learn more. I will learn better. And that goes to something like work, right? You know, you can be doing a job you're supposed to love, but if you're dealing with people who don't treat you as a human and don't engage with you, and you're just sort of a, a cog in a machine, you're going to hate that job. You're going to hate it. And there's other people who do jobs that are supposedly crappy jobs, but they love it because they're engaged and it's part of the world. They like their colleagues and the like you know, the context of what they're doing, it's more than just the thing at the heart of it, the information at the heart of it. Yeah, yeah. David, this has been fascinating. The book is called The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. Well, what is it, as we wind this down, what is it that you're hoping this book will do? And what is the conversation specifically that, that you're hoping people will have? I want people to think about the future they want based on the experience that they lived through the past couple of years and everything that led up to that. And I want them to be honest and critical. You know, we had this wonderful opportunity with this crappy experience we went through. And it's really a once in a, not even lifetime, but humanity experience, right? We got to preview the future. The future was supposed to be digital. This is the things that we were told. You know, everything is going to be e-commerce. Everything is going to be online. Everything is going to be streamed. And suddenly, that's what we had. We lived through it, not just for a day or a week, but like months and years. So can we look back on that and be honest with ourselves? You know, there's that quote, I think it's Churchill, you know, those who refuse to study history are doomed to repeat it. Well, here we go. We've lived through that history and we owe it to ourselves to sort of study it in our own lives and be honest with ourselves about what worked for us and what didn't. What are the parts of the future that's centered around digital technology that actually made our lives better, more convenient, more meaningful, gave us better connections, gave us more time? And what are the parts of it that we hated, that we couldn't wait to turn the screen off and get away from that made us feel trapped and diminished and lesser, that failed like school, you know? And how do we build a future that takes the best of both of those and combines them in a way that serves us as humans, as those corporal beings who've evolved to live in a certain way on this planet in, in the way that 
gives us the most meaning, gives us the most joy, and gives us sense of a future full of possibility and hope. That's what I hope people can talk about. That's great. Well, the book will be out, is it the 15th, I believe? Yes. Of November. So probably not long after, around the same time, this podcast comes out. So you can pick it up anywhere you get your books on Amazon or at Barnes & Noble. And is there anything else you'd like to people want to reach out to you, connect to you. I know you have, is it davidsax.com? Is that, is that your website? Saxdavid.com. There's a guy in New Zealand who's a winemaker. I think that's <laughs> davidsax.com, which is not a bad, you know, Google ganger to have. <laughs> but if you see, finds the guy and you're like, hey, I loved your book and he's selling wine in New Zealand. Five case. So it's saxdavid and that's saxdavid.com. Thank you, David, for for joining me today. And I'm excited to to see how the book goes. I think you're you're talking about a, a worthwhile conversation. And I think it's going to open up, continue to open up this conversation as all of us are pushing forward to a, a more human future. So thank you. Thank you. All right. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>